John, which part that you fell asleep to is your favorite? Oh my god, what have I done? Eggs Benedict Cumberbatch. Who the fuck is singing? Yeah, again, I don't know why I'm defending any of this. Okay, so I was right. Suck it, Zach. Love I it. will I fucking end you. <laughs> oh no, and this is the crazy thing about balls. Like, the more... <laughs> Hello, I'm Jonathan Rahul, and welcome to a special hybrid episode of Middle of the Row and Middle of the Dial. I'm calling it a hybrid episode because I'm talking today to a filmmaker who is additionally a musician. Matt Hinton is a guitarist in the band Luxury, and he is also the director of the documentary Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury. The film will be screening tomorrow at the St. Louis International Film Festival at the stage at KDHX. We talked about everything from the origins of the film to what it's like playing with three Orthodox priests in a rock band. So without further ado, here's my interview with director Matt Hinton. Cool. So I guess the first thing that I think I guess would be beneficial for like the listeners to know is just because you started out as a musician. So what was it like? How did you get into, I guess, filmmaking, I guess is my question. And then from that, uh, how did the origins of this film in particular, because it's your second film, uh, how did that take shape and what was that process like? Okay. Um. All right, so uh, pr- probably, well, around 20 years ago, um, my wife and I were in college together, and she was taking a documentary film class, and um, she and I were both fans of movies and, you know, liked watching movies and stuff, but we're not, um, we're not exactly filmmakers, but so she was obliged in this documentary film class that she was taking, she was obliged to make a, either write an essay or make a 10 minute documentary about anything. And, um, uh, and of course, you know, everybody taking that class, you know, they want to make the movie and not write the, the essay. So that was, she was in that same boat. And I recommended strongly that, um, that she do it about sacred harp singing. Uh, so I had become involved, uh, or in any event had been attending sacred harp singings, uh, in Georgia for five or six years at that point, since I was in high school and, uh, sacred harp singing. And that's, uh, H A R P like a harp though it has nothing to do with a harp and there's no instruments involved. It's purely acapella music. Um, but it, uh, in one sense, dates back to the founding of America uh, and uh, in the sense that the songs that this book called The Sacred Harp collects, uh, many of them date back to 1700s, early 1800s. And uh, so, and then in a different sense, the book itself, The Sacred Harp, uh, uh, was published in 1844 in Hamilton, Georgia, which is a small town down here in Georgia. So um, it was an under, uh, an underexposed form of music, you'd have to say. It was not well known by many people. So I recommended that she... Uh, 
make her documentary about about Sacred Harp, and um, and so I helped her with it. And we borrowed some cameras from a, a buddy of ours, and just sort of kind of figured out the process, and and um, had another buddy help with editing, and and uh, eventually she finished this this ten minute film, and. Uh, and yet we continued to bring uh, a camera with us to to these sacred harp singings, uh, which would occur fairly regularly. And and I don't know if it was an excuse, just an excuse for us to come to the singing because we weren't strong singers at that point, uh, or if it were it was um, or what it was. But we would always tell ourselves we were making a film. I don't know how much we ourselves believed it, but over the course of a few years, we had collected enough material uh both singing footage uh and these are sort of kind of field recording style footage that we had recorded out in you know small primitive baptist churches in georgia and alabama but we had collected enough of it that it just sort of and as well as interviews that we had had, uh conducted with different uh sacred harp singers uh, but we had collected enough of that material that at a certain point it we just sort of felt like, well, we kind of have to make a movie at this point. And um, so over the next couple of years, wound up editing uh, the film. And that was really the introduc- my introduction to editing. I edited that and, um, uh, and realized that that's really where the film is made. Any sort of monkey can set up a camera and press record but um not that anybody can you know can compose shots well and light them well but the editing is just by far the more complex uh endeavor so so that was that film ultimately was released in uh i guess 2008 and wound up being picked up um uh by PBS stations around the country, and and so it was seen by lots and lots of folks. So that was really my introduction to uh, to filmmaking. Is that, does that answer your question? No, completely. So then, at what point then? Since it sounds like it was it was an organic kind of origin, but very spontaneous kind of origin. Like there was no necessarily like yeah, we we were not filmmakers approaching like our next subject we were sacred harp singers or aspiring sacred harp singers at that point uh, who had fallen in love with that style of music and, um, uh, and just sort of looked around and felt like, well, this is like, this is way too interesting. How can, uh, how can it be that nobody has made a film about this yet? So uh, since no one else seemed to be willing to do it, we sort of jumped on it and, and did it which so that's a great sentiment because i feel like that also kind of touches on the origins um for parallel love you mentioned at the end of kind of your quick bio um you decided the time was right to document the making of the new record and move forward with the film which tells the full story and anyways no one else seemed likely to do it um what was it what was it about the timeline here where it seemed like okay now is when luxury story needs to be told was it was it because of the recording process or was there, was there more behind the scene or 
I was yeah. Talk more about sort of how the yeah. you decide to pick up this as your next project. Yeah. So I think that when we were um, starting to uh, when we when we started to talk about making an, another record, uh, it sort of dawned on us that well, this would be the first uh, luxury record with um, with three members who are Eastern Orthodox priests. And uh, which in itself seemed peculiar enough that um, that it was you know noteworthy that we that I at least noticed that and uh, noticed that it was odd and so I I got a, a buddy to document the recording session I obviously wasn't going to be holding a camera while holding a guitar so had him do that and. Um, started to just sort of informally kind of think about it and piece it together and and ultimately realized okay this you know it just seems too interesting and reflecting back on the years before I joined the band where I had you know shot a footage of the of the band um both uh live and in uh in recording studios we were buddies uh by that point and uh, before I had joined the band, and uh, and then even uh, not to skip ahead over much, but to when we were in the when we'd gotten in a, a wreck and uh, and everybody was laid up in the hospital. I was not because I'd been in the vehicle following the the van that crashed. Uh, so at the time, I don't really know what I was thinking about. I certainly wasn't thinking about making a movie, but I. I shot some footage in the uh, in the hospital as well, so um, I just kind of realized, well, I've got a lot of footage already, and uh, again, nobody else seemed likely to make the movie, and people weren't really aware of the story so much. So uh, I figured, well, I've done, I've made a movie before, I could do that. So, uh, though conscious at the time, and and maybe even more so now that. Um, that there's nothing lamer uh, that a person could do than make a movie about one's own band. So that's uh, a, it, that's the tricky part for me to navigate is to know how to how to feel about that and how to even communicate to other people like what the what the film is about. Because if I know if if I ask if I spoke to somebody who just made a film and they said, yeah, it's about my band. I made a movie about my band. <laughs> I would have like, I wouldn't be pumped about seeing it. So, no, for sure. so did you feel like you had, was there, do you feel any pressure to remain like overly objective then? Therefore, even though you had joined them kind of like, or like you say that Lee kind of uh, playfully refers to you as like the fifth leg and that kind of thing. Like, was there still that pressure to be like, to remain distant almost or did you feel more free in the in like, the process of in, in the process of making the film you mean yeah yeah uh yeah i think because i joined the band later and and the band had already gone through a lot of stuff uh together and because i joined the band in 99 um i always sort of felt like an outsider have always felt like an outsider and and um and in some ways have been an observer uh, within the band uh, context. So 
um, uh, so in one sense, it was very natural that I was already sort of outside, but had access. Um, but yes, to answer your question, uh, yes, I felt like I had to be um, maybe extra objective and um, and just kind of get the job done. I didn't. I certainly, when I was making it, did not feel like I was making a movie about myself. Uh, nor do I think that uh, having done it, I don't think that anyone would watch the film and uh, and that they would see me in the film and say, that must be the guy that made this movie. I don't think that, that uh, there's any really tip-off to that. Do you? I, not at all. It does, like you say, come off very naturally. And then when you when you kind of find out – you because I had sort of through like some press – You knew going into it. Yeah, I knew that – like you would be a part of that story but then i was always kind of waiting for like oh this story is like going like pretty far in depth until like it isn't until you start talking about the car accident and the van accident that you start to get a sense of you start to feel your presence a little bit more i guess i should say um but then so then from the filmmaker's point of view what was that like both logistically and emotionally uh, compiling all of the old footage or going back and talking to old bandmates and old friends and that kind of thing, or uh, record label owners and that kind of thing. What was that like both logistically that process, but then also emotionally for you and personally? Yeah. yeah. So logistically it was a huge headache. (laughs) Um, uh, And in particularly, you can't say that the other guys in luxury in general, particularly the brothers, Lee and Jamie, you can't say that they were exactly chomping at the bit for, for me to make, or for anyone to make this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, they more or less gave their blessing, but, but, um, but you know, I'd be, I would be halfway through the film, more than halfway through the film and still begging them for photographs and any video footage and anything like that, that they might have. And they, they just every so often would maybe post some random picture, maybe on Facebook or something like that. I'm like, why didn't you give me that? Like, what? <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. Like, oh, you want to? And it's like, yes, I want everything. I want all of it. So, but even you know, like at the same, you know, they, it's not like they had. It's not like they've got photo albums of this stuff. It's sort of in boxes and in um, in attics, like like all of my stuff was. So would you say that was, would you, sorry, would you say that was kind of a new sort of, or something you wouldn't expect for them? Cause you talk about earlier in the, in the film about sort of how they had this ambition and they had this both with their music and even with Lee's stage presence, like there was a swagger to it or an, almost like an arrogance in terms of what they wanted Mm -hmm. to accomplish. So when, when you were making the film and you went back to try to get, the footage and the video were you almost kind of shocked that they were that they were a little bit more casual about it or a little bit more i guess laissez-faire about the process <laughs> not at all actually <laughs> not even remotely like it's a weird uh yeah i don't know like i don't know how to describe it really but they're um like in one sense are way way like yes there's i feel like it, at least within the band context and particularly Lee's sort of stage persona always had that kind of uh, swagger, as you say, and arrogance, as you say. Um, uh, 
but in terms of like just personally knowing him and knowing them um they're quiet unassuming people and so they're not putting themselves out there like they're the least self-promotional people frustratingly <laughs> self <laughs> least self-promotional people uh i've maybe ever met yeah and um so um so there's one sense of it that's like, yep, we're gonna we'll make a record, and if nobody hears it, that's fine. No, you know, nobody's gonna like it anyway. Almost is the attitude, and um, uh, and of course Lee's writing these great songs, and you know, like, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about that, but so yeah, that was a no. So no, I was not that surprised that they were not crazy forthcoming about stuff and just like but every so often it's like oh i was cleaning up and i you know found this are you interested in this and it'd be you know the the mother load of you know all this material (laughs) so um and emotionally so the interesting thing about that is that of course a lot of of the story uh sort of hinges on a couple of you know sort of various emotional like pretty emotionally fraught moments um but when you're editing a film and you're working on it you know 12 hours a day for literally you know i mean for two years um there's no like you can't be emotional the whole time and um and if i was ever like the only times i think i was emotional while making it i guess during the interviews uh to a degree um, but if there was like if I landed on a cut of a sequence that felt right and that sort of arrived at something that had sort of a, a moment that's like, oh, that works, then I could I could experience that a little bit. But um, uh, but I think that any any creative endeavor or at least the way that I maybe maybe it's just me, but so much of creativity for me is about. Um, is about observing the thing that I'm doing at that moment and relying on my taste, which I, of course, think is impeccable, uh, as as hopefully everybody does. Uh, not, not that they think my taste is impeccable, but hopefully people trust their own taste and, and like what they like, uh, which is a tautology, but I think that, you know, Everybody likes what they like. So, and I certainly do. So, um, uh, so it's, it's mainly about observation. And if it doesn't work, if I don't like it, then I toss it and, uh, and try the next thing until I get something that I do like. And it's, so it's less about, to me, it's less about create, about creating a thing and more about observing a thing that I happen to be sort of fashioning if that makes sense. Um, for sure. And of course, some, of course, sometimes like the next day, you know, I'll think I've, you know, I've hit upon it. It's, you know, it's the, I've, I've done it. And then I see what I did the next day and it's just awful. So, um, uh, so yeah, there's a distance is required. That objective stance is absolutely vital. Um, and trying to put yourself in the position of a viewer who doesn't have any sort of emotional entanglements with us, who doesn't have, uh, who don't know the story, 
And so, like, that's a piece of it. You don't want to, like, you you have to tell the story. There's certain facts that have to, to get out there without belaboring the point, which is always my problem. Like, I always want to belabor a point. I'm sure I did in this as well. But but it's so much of it is cutting away all of that, you know, like you want to, if you want to make a point, like when you're interviewing somebody, you you have maybe three or four people say the same kind of thing, and you you say, well, I've hit upon something here. This must be important. Therefore, I've got to have these three or four people say it. But ultimately, it winds up being three or four people kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, and you have to you have to choose. Like, look, I, you know, like we get it already. We don't, <laughs> don't need to hear it three four times. Yeah. So so you. Uh, you got to cut three of them away, and sometimes that's difficult because of, you know, like relationships or whatever it is. But ultimately, you have to do what's right for the film. So, but from an emotional point of view, I would say the first time that the film had any kind of real emotional impact on me as a viewer, uh, or as a as a sort of regarding it. Um, other than emotional impact of like, you know, it taking up a lot of my time and it, that creating, you know, like it being hard to be with my family as much as I I intended to be and that kind of thing. But apart from that, uh, actually the first, we had sort of a, a first screening that was a private screening for people who were involved in the film at various points. And of course, I had seen it on a, a computer screen in front of me any number of times, in bits and pieces mainly. But uh, that was the first time I'd seen it with, seen it in a sort of theater setting, or a screening room setting with other people, and somehow all of a sudden it had a completely new and pronounced uh, emotional impact that it had not had at all. Like I was very uh, unemotional about it uh, up until that point. At that point, it was just sort of, this is my job right now and I just need to plow through it. And of course, by that point, you're just totally exhausted by the thing and how could anything about it have any sort of emotional sort of freshness to it. But um, uh, remarkably, that that evening it did. And And I've seen it a couple of times since then with an audience and it it uh that impact has sort of persisted for me so um so yeah that must be such a pleasant and such a gratifying experience to be just almost like stuck in the trenches of the creative process that you feel like you're not you're not benefiting from or you're not maybe seeing the full completeness of what of the accomplishment aspect until you experience it at the end of it and then you it's almost overwhelming. That must be such a amazing right. experience, and to have it, yeah, like you said, to, persist. Yeah, to and to uh, yeah, to think, oh well, that's what that was for. Like that was the point of all of that, the sleepless nights and all of this kind of business. Um, I think it was Dorothy Parker or somebody who said, um, "I hate writing, but I love having written." And I think that that describes um, the process for me. Uh, it's there's so much about it that's uh, that's that's unpleasant <laughs> about about editing because you're just sitting and 
dealing with maybe like if you get through one minute worth of finished material in a day in a 12 hour period or 10 hour period or something like that that's a an accomplishment and um so it's just it's a little bit so you do that you do this minute or two and then the next minute or two and then the next minute or two and then you know a, a couple of months later a few months later you come back and start again from the beginning and uh or or do segments like that but it's yeah. a little bit like if you've ever if you've ever uh combed out long hair it's like you can get sort of an eighth of the way through the oh, first yeah. pass and then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and then you start it over again until it you know yeah so yeah i can presently relate to that um almost too well um oh, is that I, right? yeah um I'm also wondering because your hair is so dang long. Yeah, well, it's also I got I got it trimmed this summer too, so now it's at that uh-huh. it's at that awkward like right above my shoulders length where like because it gets so tangled it just becomes poofy and it looks like a mess and <laughs> yeah it's it's usually okay in the morning I can like tie my hair back but I'm out of hair ties and so I just walked into work today and I'm a I'm a high school teacher. And so my kids were like, uh-huh. we didn't realize your hair was so long. And I was just like, yeah, I tried to hide that from you guys. Right. Y'all don't need to think I'm a hippie. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm wondering how the filmmaking process was similar and different from uh, sacred harp, especially like you kind of touched on the observational process. Whereas sacred harp was something that you and your wife were experiencing like super currently at the time. Um, whereas this seemed a little bit more reminiscent and kind of almost looking back, did that change the process or make it different or, or better or worse or anything? Yeah. You? So there were different, there were similarities and differences to be sure, though I will say that with the sacred harp film, a good portion of it is about the history of sacred harp singing. Uh, so dating back to the 1700s and actually before that. So, in that sense, it was retrospective, and it was dealing with current sort of current performance practice type stuff uh, as well. But it was um, uh, so I would say in many, in that in that respect, it was actually quite similar because you know, of course, with the with the band, I was you know we were actively making a record and dealing with that stuff. Uh, and with the Sacred Harp film, which is called Awake My Soul, the story of the Sacred Harp, uh, that film, uh, we were also sort of similarly engaged with it, would go to singings nearly every weekend. And um, uh, and so, yeah, no, actually, in, in that sense, it was sort of, there was a real similarity there. I think that the main difference is uh in terms of the way that that i approached it well for one thing i didn't have any pressure with the first one like it didn't in terms of the editing process it could just get done when it was done um and with this one i felt sort of a a uh an accountability to other people that like i need to get this thing finished uh, for one thing, for the sake of the band, we had made this record and, and had intended to release the record at the same time that we released the film, which 
neither of which have have been released yet. So we've been sitting on the record for a while, and I knew that that the guys were getting antsy about that with the Sacred Heart film. No was being no one was getting antsy about anything because they, you know, I was just some schlub that would show up to singings and 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 uh, and film them, and uh, I don't think that anybody had any high hopes or expectations for it. Um, uh, and this time I think that at least for myself, my hopes and expectations were much higher. Also, I, I, um, uh, did a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to, to make this cause it's wildly expensive to make a film like in ways that you just can't even, <laughs> I almost can't even believe Yeah, like, where did it all go? <laughs> and, um, it's just so everything about it's just so expensive. So other than, you know, like I just assume that my time is worth nothing basically. So I, you know, of course I'm just plowing away and it's just my time, but you know, from equipment to any sort of outside help that one inevitably needs, uh, uh, from assistant editors to, you know, just all of, you know, mixing and co-editor and all of these sort of things, it just winds up being expensive. So, um, Anyway, so I did the Kickstarter campaign, and so I was conscious of there being contributors to the Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaign who I think I had promised to sort of within 10 months of, of completing the campaign. And, of course, it was another year and a half beyond that almost. So so I, I felt a lot of pressure from that. But um, And I think that I learned a few things, learned a few tricks from between – you know, making the films, and when I when I've I've now seen our previous film since making this one, and just thinking, oh man, I would have done that differently and this differently, and you know, but you know, I guess that's why you make another movie to to get it right next time. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and that's that's great for you. That's interesting and awesome to hear about, like that process also being continual, right? Like it's not something that like ends once the final product's created. You can always like go back and like rethink or revise. And the, I guess that also, it leads me to ask, so ask, cause again, you started out as a musician. Um, how is the songwriting and the music making process? How's that different for you from the filmmaking process? But then also what is it like? I mean, these two movies have both been, like intrinsically entrenched in uh, the culture of music and that kind of thing, or the subject of music. What's it like blending your two trades now to, does it enhance each other or are they still very separate processes or what is that like for you? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I will say that, you know, when I mentioned earlier, the idea that every so often you'll hit upon a, uh, a good edit, which inevitably just means uh, combining two or more things and timing it right. Either, either it's an emotional timing with what's whatever the context is, or it's timed right with the music, or whatever it may be. I will say that that experience of that experience of of hitting upon something like that is uh i have the same feeling when that happens as i do when i come up with a 
a little guitar lick or guitar riff or or chord progression or melody or something like that that I'm writing. Um, yeah, it's sort of a gratifying feeling. Uh, uh, so in that sense, it's similar. And, it, and like I say, it's a, about sort of listening to or watching and experiencing the things that your hands have done um, and then evaluating it from that point. Um, but in other respects, they're, you know, they're very different. You're uh, sort of the way that uh, that you physically engage with the uh, with the medium is different. And yeah, I don't know. It's uh, there are probably some overlaps that I don't I don't really realize. But yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> I don't have a great answer for it. No, that's fair. I well, I mean, to also lead into it. So then, I was wondering if you could uh, describe like a, you go. You obviously talk about it um, towards that ending, that latter part of the film. But I was wondering if we could hear more specifically from your end the recording of that. La- so that last album is called Trophies <laughs> to be released. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. I wanted to hear from you more personally uh, what that process was like, or even just the experience of getting together with those guys again uh, to make music. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was. So we hadn't played together in a few years, and so it was uh, great to get together and to play and to to begin writing songs and that process. And then once we got into the studio to begin recording it, well, so there was there were sort of ups and downs in it all, um, but it was is just really difficult. Like it was difficult, sort of interpersonally. I think that part of it is that uh, you got three priests, <laughs> uh, and then like I own I own a restaurant. Like that's what I that's sort of what my day job, and uh, it and we're all sort of older. We have families and that kind of thing. We're accustomed in our own domain to being in charge of whatever we're doing. And I think that when you when you put us all in a room and try to get us on the same page, um, and some like when it worked, it worked. But then other times it was sort of like uh, it was uh, it was diff- it was difficult, <laughs> and, to put it mildly. Um, Did seem like it wasn't as much like riding a bike. Like you guys had to kind of get used to like. Oh, hey, like you bring like like you almost talk about also with the band originally, like whereas Lee wanted to be like Morrissey, Jamie just wanted to like shred in Fugazi or that kind of thing. And uh, Glenn was like like the drummer for like Led Zeppelin or something behind it. Was it was it harder to kind of balance those like differing personalities like so much further removed from the origins of the band or like the touring uh, time? of No, I would say I would say if. I would say, if anything, like musically, I would say that the the various members of the band have sort of grown closer in the same direction, uh, more so. Like y- you wouldn't see each member as being as dissimilar as they maybe originally were. So I think that that was less the issue and more just plainly interpersonal kind of stuff. Just like figuring out how are we how are we going to get along and how are we going to uh, how are we going to compromise uh, or not compromise if Lee has determined that it's going to be a certain <laughs> way? 
and just like sort of get on with it. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, he certainly has the sort of strongest personality in the sense of like having a, a um, he knows what he likes and he, and he knows what he doesn't like. And that, that, that second category of things that he doesn't like is, is, is uh, infinitesimally larger than the former <laughs> one. Um, and, you know, like he'll, he's very, as I think as it is, comes across in the film, he's not like an emotional kind of person. He's not sort of very touchy feely or anything like that. He's just very straightforward. And uh, even though his music, like I feel like his uh, music is his emotional outlet. Uh, but in his just sort of day-to-day life, I don't, he's not a, um, he's just a straightforward, practical person. And, um, uh, and so, you know, that's that, which is often great. And then sometimes like makes it a little bit more complicated to, you know, when you're, when you're in a, a creative process can be a little bit, um, yet you have to bring your thickest skin, put it that way. No, fair enough. Well, additionally, so how was the, because you touched on it, the religious vocation aspect of it, and Jamie and Chris talk about it a little bit more in terms of the music aspect, but why did you, from your side, in terms of telling the story of the band, not just in the past, but into into the present, why was it important to you to emphasize that kind of, that lifestyle decision or that, that life decision that all three of them had made aside from it being this very unique aspect of the story. Why was it important for you to also show that aspect too, whether it's them in mass or them even just putting on the like sacred garments and that kind of thing from a filmmaker's perspective, why did you really want to uh, portray that? And what was your goal in portraying that? Well, put it this way. If, if um, these guys had become like had all become music ministers at an event at at various evangelical churches like the kind of churches that look like rock and roll clubs anyway yeah then like what's there to look at like that's there's nothing it's just not that interesting (laughs) like it's yeah it's visually not interesting it's just there's not i wouldn't make the movie it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that compelling it wouldn't be that. I mean, it'd be sort of mildly surprising, I guess, given the music that they did. But, um, uh, but it, uh, but I think that for most Americans, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is such a a um, an exotic and sort of foreign um, faith tradition that. Um, and it has such a and built into its very theology it has such a strong visual aesthetic uh, about it and that's an important like a, a theologically important component of it is beauty like that's an important an important uh, aspect of orthodoxy and so you know well of course that's going to be something worth filming and and um you know, uh, not all vocations require a uh, a new type of dress, uh, uh, like that does. And so, of course, sort of uh, 
that transition from just sort of dressed like a normal rock and roll kind of guy to an orthodox priest of course that's interesting as well and then you know the image of of you know before we started uh making the record the priests uh decided to bless the recording studio so going through the space uh with incense and crosses and so on and uh uh and uh, and blessing that space was just such an interesting, um, two interesting sort of parallel trajectories that um, that was just such has such an, a, a visual uh, appeal that you know who could resist? Was it in that moment, which was one of the most like arresting i think shots and this this great kind of blending of like the guys current lives and sort of that step back into the time when you guys were a band what was it like being a participant in that who is outside of that faith tradition like was it was that aspect of beauty still apparent and still like resonating with you uh yeah and it's not in uh Yes, I'm not Orthodox, though I had, I have been around it enough and have been to enough uh, services that it's it doesn't have uh, quite the novelty that it once did. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean yeah, it's all it's uh, a uh, a beautiful tradition, or at least a stridently it's its own thing. And so whether like there are a lot of people who don't don't care for the iconography of the Eastern Church, and I understand that it's not like it's not uh, it doesn't adhere to the uh, sort of Western classical art traditions, but it adheres to its own traditions, and um, and so that on any level is appealing to me, uh, uh, though I I. Uh, like the look of it as well so and the sound of it the whole like it's it's such a sensory um uh, experience to go to an orthodox service and you're hearing and you're smelling and you're feeling and you're you're uh you're seeing it's it's the whole package that's i mean and it's excuse me it's awesome that you allow us the ability to kind of step into that with the shots that you take. And um, like, I forget who it was, but the writer from vice said um, he was kind of talking about sort of how the frustrations he had with people not being able to appreciate the beauty in something uh, just because it was labeled as religious or that kind of thing. And I think you portraying that was able, if anything, it also enhanced the beauty of the band's Mm. earlier work and that kind of thing. Um, cool so yeah yeah that was a that was a great scene um that's that's pretty much all i had normally i've got i do a section uh i call it the lightning round and it's really cheesy and i ask a bunch of like stupid questions that are unrelated um (laughs) to anything if anything i guess um two quick questions before we kind of close out here yep i think what would be what would you say was probably the hardest part about making the about the film and what would you say was probably the easiest or the funnest aspect about making the film right um 
So the uh, the hardest part would have to be, um, would have to be a point about three quarters of the way through it where I was completely in the weeds, didn't know if I could really make it into a film, like beat it into shape, and um, make it coherent and make it emotionally uh, sort of true, if that makes sense. Um, so that was that was and just sort of like feeling kind of aimless and helpless and not really having direction on it. That was a difficult uh, part. Um, that was probably there, go was ahead. there anything specifically that kind that was like really instigating for the those emotions and those feelings, or was it just like the overwhelming nature of like tackling like your second film? Yeah, I mean it, it was. No, but I mean, there were specific things. Like there were specific. It's like, well, you know, where does this section go? Uh, I won't spoil this, but there's there's a section concerning the uh, the drummer, Glenn, who um, tells a uh, a story that's very personal and and um, uh, and uh, moving, and I I couldn't find a place for it. Like I knew that I wanted to use it, but I was starting to believe I couldn't use it because it's one thing to it's because it didn't directly connect to the uh, the the story of the band as such, though it was certainly um, significant in his own life. Um, uh, It didn't fit within the chronology in an obvious kind of way, so. Uh, but with a section like that, which is very emotionally sort of fraught, you don't want to um, – it's easy enough to move, to go into that, and it's almost impossible to come out of it. Like how do you follow something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that took just forever. Like where am I going to put this? And then I, there were other things that I felt like I had to explain uh, that through the storytelling had to sort of account for. And then eventually had to just sort of come to terms with, you know what, like it's that way because it's that way and people are just going to have to to accept it because not accepting it would mean the movie would have to be an extra 15 minutes to explain this thing or that. So, uh, so yeah, that was that, that stuff was difficult. Um, and was this the next thing was what, the funnest part? Yeah. Or the, yeah, the one that maybe came the most naturally or went the most the the smoothest or that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, the interviews were fun just because it was you know hanging out and talking to somebody and that's always fun or you know going and traveling and visiting a person or you know getting to know people that I didn't didn't know at all or or didn't know well or hadn't seen in a while. That stuff was good fun. The editing itself, like I don't know, there's anything fun about it. <laughs> like it's it's just a grind. It's, yeah. uh, you know, like those gratifying moments where you hit upon something and it's feeling good. Those are those moments like you'd have to call fun, I suppose. Um, and but really the funnest part of it was being done with it. <laughs> Fair enough. That sounds like what a bat, what a terrible advertisement for for making movies. I mean, but, I, uh, I, but I think that also sounds like par for the course for any yeah. creator who, yeah. uh, 
takes a part in any type of uh, creative endeavor. Yeah, it's it's funny that we look at these things and say, well, that just seems like you know they're just screwing around, like there's that's all fun and games, and because it's not, I don't know why that is. Uh, when we see somebody um, digging a ditch, <laughs> we don't say, well, that's fun and games. Of course, like we say, well, that's you know that seems difficult and a bit better than the me. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then we when we see something like a, a film, maybe because like the result of it is something that is entertaining that you think that the creating of it is going to be inter- that it ought to have been entertaining as well for the people making it. And, um, and yeah, I just don't I don't I, I, I mean, maybe, you know, I'm sure I mean, the aspects of it, like when you're just playing in the band, not necessarily recording. There can be fun things about recording, but uh, but when you're just playing and making music, that like that is great fun in its own way. It's div- it's work, but it's that kind of that's that good work that you feel you sort of sense that you're doing something, and it's gratifying having done it, and mm-hmm. it's and it's a real time experience that you can create music with you know four other people, and you know. Uh, Three minutes ago, there was no such thing as that song in that particular way, and now, in some sort of sense, it it has been conjured into existence, and that's fun, and uh, and great. Nice. Well, that's. I, I was gonna kind of end it there, but then as I was thinking about uh, how I was gonna close it out, I just also realized. So you're gonna be here on Friday. By here, I, I mean St. Louis. Yeah. Um, for the St. Louis International Film Festival. Um, but you'll be talking with also kind of moderating the conversation will be uh, Jeffrey Wicks, yep. who is uh, assistant professor of early Christianity at St. Louis University. He's also uh, in the film talking a little bit more about the Eastern Orthodox tradition in the context of like uh, the faith tradition that Lee, Jamie and Chris, Chris kind of discovered. Why, what was it like? And also, by the way, I'll, I'll say, uh, Jeff, in addition to being, uh, an authority in the field of orthodoxy and the, the Syriac language, I hasten to, to, to add, um, uh, he was also in a, uh, a rock and roll band that we were friendly with called Annie, uh, and they were from Chattanooga, which wasn't very far from from uh, uh, where we were in Georgia, and um, and so we would play together and so forth. So he sort of started as a fan of the band, then sort of a, a creative colleague, and uh, and then as a, a, a an expert in the field. So he covers a lot of ground. Also, so in turn, when you were looking at having someone provide some of that background or that context, was he like the first one on your mind? Like, oh, I got to get Jeff in on this because he'd be an interesting kind of connection between both aspects of the band. Or how did that connection develop? Yeah, I don't know that he was the first, but uh, but he was among them. For one thing, he's just a fun guy and good fun to hang out with. And so, you know, any way that I could conspire to make that happen, I was into. And <laughs> nice. uh, and that he kills a couple of birds with one stone that with with him we can uh talk about the history of the band as well as um as orthodoxy 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, he was one of the first. If he's listening to this, he was the first. If he's not <laughs> listening to it, then, you know, let's be real. This guy's a clown. So I'm guessing I should delay the release of the episode until after Friday then, I guess. Oh, uh, no, on the contrary, on the contrary. <laughs> uh, cool, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I should, I guess I, thank Matt again. Thank you so much. Uh, is there Matt, a lightning round? Are you going to do a lightning round? Well, that, those were, those were kind of my only two. Well, okay. No, was actually, it's a lightning round. Well, I want to keep it serious, I guess. I thought but you were going to ask me what my favorite hash browns are at Waffle House or something. Well, okay. Here's one question. Uh, just cause I also don't want to take up too much of your time, but no burritos how how'd you get into burritos is my question okay that's that's a, that is actually a long story <laughs> but the very short the shortest i can do it is that uh about eight or nine years well in 2008 or nine whenever the the uh economy tanked with that recession that we had uh i was a uh religion professor at morehouse and spelman colleges in Atlanta and uh, and when the economy tanked their private schools so enrollment dipped down and all of a sudden one of the classes that I always taught at Morehouse was not going to be available to me that semester because there weren't enough students so I sent an email to a bunch of friends and said you know basically I'm in a pickle and I'm gonna try to make some extra dough this semester so on just on Mondays, I will uh, make and deliver burritos to your homes if you you know place an order by the night before. Uh, and so that was what I did. And at first it was just friends ordering, and then friends of friends, and then people I didn't know who they were were ordering the things. And um, uh, it was a it was a drag to do. And so I was looking forward to the next semester when things would get back to normal. But uh, as fate would have it, uh, the next semester came around, and once again that class was not available. And then then I had to, you know, sort of figure out how I would uh, uh, how I would proceed. And one thing led to the next, and it all spiraled out of control, and it became a uh, a burrito shop. Uh, and so now there are currently three of them, and it's called Bell Street Burritos. And uh, voted voted top ten burritos by in in America by USA Today. I should add that is correct. <laughs> that is how good they are. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, let me know when you come in town uh, if you want to grab a bite to eat before the screening. Yeah. I will. Uh, I will do my best to present you with St. Louis's finest burritos. More burritos? <laughs> uh, are there good burritos there for real? Uh, we've got a couple. Well, there's there's all the kitschy kind of like Tex-Mex places or whatever um, that are fairly popular still. But then there's a very vibrant uh, Hispanic and Latin American community, specifically along uh, a street called Cherokee Street. And there's okay. just some fantastic, like really authentic awesome. uh, Mexican and Latin American food. Cool. Um and then we also got, weirdly, this sounds weird, but it actually very much works, Korean-Mexican fusion food. Uh, they've got um, a little bit of that in here as well. And so that's, yeah, that's 
that's very popular now too. But, I'm more of a purist. I don't go in for that the hybrid <laughs> stuff. Yeah, fusion fusion food is super super trendy right now. I'm maybe a little bit overblown. Yep, I'm super not into it. I want my I want my Mexican straight up Mexican, and I, even though here I am, some white dude with a burrito, <laughs> so fair enough. So I can't can't speak to the, I don't know. <laughs> what are you gonna do? I needed a job. That's my excuse. Awesome. You can do anything in the in the recession. <laughs> this this is true. Well, Matt Hinton is clearly a renaissance man, a religion professor, a burrito connoisseur. Um, but most notably, the guitarist for the band Luxury and the filmmaker and director of the film Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury, uh, that is screening this Friday at the St. Louis International Film Festival uh, at 7.30 at stage at KDHX. Uh, and following will be a discussion with the director himself, Matt Hinton, and Jeffrey Wicks, who appears in the film and is an assistant professor of early Christianity at St. Louis University. Matt, uh, before we let you go, uh, where can people find out either more information about the film, uh, Luxury, the band, or just yourself online? Uh, so you can go to parallel-love.com for info on the film, and you can go to Bandcamp and listen to Bandcamp or Spotify and listen to luxury jams all you want, but not the not the new record yet. That'll that is forthcoming, but soon, gotcha. and that'll be called Trophies. Gotcha, perfect. All right, Matt. Again, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. That's gonna do it for this episode of Middle of the Dial. I'm Jonathan Rahul. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at another Rahul J and make sure to follow our website on Twitter at middle of row or just check us out on our website at www.middleofrow.com. And remember, the best songs are in the middle of the dial. There were times we could dance all day, nowhere to go, no reason to stay. There were times we could dance all day.